Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you this morning. Uh, given the record of snowfall in Washington, D.C. this winter season, uh, you are lucky that you didn't get snowed out uh, to begin with. So it's a pleasure to be here. This could not be a more propitious time to gather together uh, senior economic policymakers and financial industry leaders. Uh, as we speak, ambitious changes in the U.S. financial regulatory system are under consideration in the halls of Congress. My subject this morning, um, as he said, will be the reform of the U.S. financial regulatory system. And while much has been written on this vast subject, there is a risk, I believe, that these laudable efforts at reform uh, could get bogged down in less important issues, and we might miss this opportunity for real regulatory reform. So I'll devote my remarks this morning to describing what I see as the essential core questions on the regulatory reform agenda. Before I begin, I should note, as usual, uh, that I speak only for myself and not necessarily for my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. Given the historic financial market instability of the last two years, the search for improvements and reforms in the financial regulatory system and financial markets more broadly uh, is not surprising. But if the purpose of reform is to achieve greater financial stability, it's essential to inquire first about the nature of the financial instability problem that the reforms are attempting to address. And here, I'll note to begin that it's not enough to simply observe that a crisis has occurred. The considerable downturn in housing market fundamentals alone would have led one to expect substantial movements in financial prices and quantities with attendant strains for many institutions and perhaps failures, even in a very well-functioning financial market system. Many participants in the financial reform debate, however, do not believe that the financial system functioned well in this crisis. Excessive instability, they contend, was caused by inherent deficiencies in financial markets, and governments must stand ready to intervene to remedy those deficiencies, both in a crisis by preventing failures and beforehand by limiting risk-taking. What are these deficiencies? Some see externalities at work that lead financial market participants to neglect the spillover effects of one institution's failure on others. One firm's trouble weakens confidence in other similar firms and encourages the spread of runs in which counterparties flee simply because they expect other counterparties to flee as well. These externalities are made all the more severe, it is said, by the complex web of interconnections among financial firms. While such theories have popular appeal, on closer examination, in my view, uh, they provide a rickety foundation on which to rebuild regulatory edifice. First, the notion that financial market spillovers stemming from interconnectedness uh, really doesn't fit the standard economist definition of policy-relevant externalities. Creditors voluntarily choose their counterparties, after all, and they have no inherent reason to neglect the implied exposure to their counterparties' counterparties. Financial asset owners voluntarily sign up for a range of potential re returns, and they have no inherent reason to neglect any particular possibilities. In short, interconnectedness alone is not a market failure. It's true, however, that reports that one firm is failing can cause creditors to pull away from other firms. But that intelligence, that information that one firm is failing, uh, is, can be genuinely informative about the other counterparty's fundamentals. 
an official intervention that prevents the disorderly failure isn't going to suppress the news that the institution the government is intervening to support has a condition that's become fatal. That information is going to be revealed regardless of the government's action. Moreover, a company's vulnerability to run-like behavior is the result of how they and their creditor how they and their creditors have chosen to structure uh, their financial relationships. Firms that engage in maturity transformation, funding holdings of longer-term assets with short-term or demandable liabilities, have voluntarily selected a business strategy that leaves them vulnerable to adverse news and financial distress in exchange for a lower cost of short-term highly liquid funding. I think these observations should suggest a deep skepticism of theories of inherently excessive instability in financial arrangements. More broadly, the usefulness of such theories as a guide to policy action requires a measure of policymaker omniscience regarding economic fundamentals that seems to me far-fetched. Officials in real time must be able to confidently detect divergences between observed asset prices and fundamental values and know when a firm's solvency makes a run unwarranted. Moreover, they must do so in circumstances in which many of their market information sources have a vested interest in official assessments because they could be the basis for official intervention. Outguessing the outcome of market mechanisms, whose function, after all, is to aggregate diverse perspectives, is a daunting goal in tranquil times, and it may be unattainable in turbulence of a volatile market. I do believe, however, that there is a spillover channel that does add to financial market instability, however, and that regulatory reform can and should address. The federal financial safety net, including both explicit and implicit guarantees, is intended to bolster stability by blunting the incentive of depositors or other short-term creditors to run from otherwise sound institutions. But creditors who are uncertain about whether they will be protected will be hypersensitive to whether a similar institution receives government support. Intervening to prevent losses at one distressed institution will increase the perceived odds of future intervention in like cases, whereas letting the, the first institution file for bankruptcy will diminish those perceived odds. A sudden investor retreat sparked by a collapse in expectations of government support would just add to financial market volatility in an already volatile situation. And that's why I believe there's this incredible sense of urgency about protecting creditors and counterparties. It becomes just overwhelming in a crisis for policymakers. Policymakers understandably feel compelled to act in ways they find repugnant and despite how they may feel about how it exacerbates moral hazard. The resolution of this ambiguity, whatever uncertainty or ambiguity there is about the, the safety net, um, thus, is thus sort of biased towards intervention. Uh, and that tends to expand the scope of implied, implicit safety net guarantees over time. Each crisis elicits additional support. Every time that happens, it raises expectations of future support. That weakens market discipline. It makes business strategies built on maturity transformation more attractive relative to protecting an institution against run, to taking steps by, to the institution itself taking steps to protect itself against run. 
This dynamic is not lost on regulators, of course, and they invariably toughen regimes within the scope of their authority to prevent recidivism in the next cycle, to prevent it happening again, to prevent the same risks causing the damage they did in the past cycle. This raises the cost, however, of regulated intermediation, and it increases the demand for deposit-like liquid investment vehicles that are just outside the regulatory regime that that avoid that regulatory burden. So in the next expansion, maturity transformation takes root again, just outside the regulated zone, where there's a good chance of benefiting from the implicit safety net, but full regulatory constraints on risk-taking can be avoided. For example, uh, going back in history, the trust companies that sparked the panic of 1907 in New York uh, were outside the purview of the New York Clearinghouse, which, uh, as an aside, was the systemic risk regulator of its day. Money market mutual funds and the tri-party repo market are two modern examples of regulatory bypass that provide deposit-like liquidity without the regulatory burden associated with bank intermediation. Given the scale and breadth of their customer base, participants in these bank-like arrangements might reasonably have anticipated government support in the event of widespread market stresses. That conjecture was ultimately confirmed in 2008. Aggravating this dynamic is the fact that the incentive distortions are going to be concentrated in those states of the world in which financial system strains are widespread and the safety net is in the money. This encourages firms to discount more heavily exposures to macroeconomic shocks, such as, to take an example at random, a nationwide downturn in housing prices, or market-wide liquidity shocks, such as we've seen in this past crisis. Firms facing such incentives would overvalue, for example, the senior tranches of mortgage-backed securities relative to their fundamental values. What sort of financial regulatory reform does this diagnosis imply? The events of the last several years have certainly revealed opportunities to improve the regulatory and supervisory regime for large, complex bank holding companies. And as one should expect, the Federal Reserve and the other banking agencies in the United States and and elsewhere are acting aggressively on lessons learned. Tougher capital and liquidity requirements for financial institutions are in order to more tightly restrain leverage and maturity transformation. The Fed is leading domestic and international efforts to do so. Improvements are needed in understanding and monitoring off-balance sheet exposures of large financial firms and the ways in which those exposures can boomerang back onto their balance sheets. And again, the Fed is leading efforts to do so. And the ways in which we account for macroeconomic risk factors in assessing the risks facing individual institutions can also be improved. Here, the Fed is drawing on its unique multidisciplinary expertise to build new supervisory capabilities. These capabilities were essential to the so-called bank stress tests last year, which assessed the future capital needs of a set of large institutions under adverse but plausible macroeconomic scenarios And these stress tests dramatically reduced market uncertainty about potential balance sheet risks at those institutions when the results were finally released. But regulatory improvements alone, as essential as they are, will not be enough. This cycle of crisis, rescue, and bypass 
is destined to recur with ever more force unless we alter what market participants believe will happen when a financial firm becomes distressed. Recognizing that market discipline requires that creditors expect to bear losses on insolvent counterparties, many financial reform proposals create new failure resolution processes that give policymakers additional tools besides the current existing bankruptcy code for handling failing firms. I think reformers are right to focus on the dismal options facing policymakers, on those climactic Sunday nights when a large firm's fate hangs in the balance. But I believe it would be wrong to establish a, a government fu fund, as many proposals do, that could be used at, at regulators' discretion to soften the blow to a failing firm's creditors. This discretion would work against the goals of resolution reform, particularly the goal of ensuring predictable losses to creditors. Expanding policymakers' toolkit will do nothing to reduce the frequency of financial crises if it does nothing to reduce policymakers' aversion to the destabilizing effect of undermining expectations of government support for creditors of other similarly situated institutions. Real regulatory reform thus requires eliminating the inherent ambiguity of the implicit component of the financial safety net. But exactly where do we draw a new bright line around the safety net now that the old one, government-insured depository institutions, has been demolished? Neither economists, lawyers, nor anyone else that I've been able to find has been able to define observationally the notion of systemic importance. And that's understandable if the systemic significance stems mainly from the ambiguity in the implicit safety net. One is forced instead to fall back on charter type. And here I think the most appealing choice of scope is the set of institutions affiliated with insured depository institutions. The credibility of definite boundaries for the safety net is going to require clear commitment. Those inside the safety net should have clear expectations about the nature of backstop government liquidity support and a commensurate regulatory regime around their risk-taking. Those outside the safety net should presume they will receive no support, and that should actually be the fact. The credibility of that commitment will require disappointing expectations of creditor-protecting intervention for those outside the delineated safety net and disappointment that could be quite painful at times. But without a willingness to resolve safety net ambiguity in favor of unassisted fa failure rather than assistance, we will have a continual difficulty preventing risky maturity transformation strategies that bypass the explicit safety net. The credibility of a clear and well-defined financial safety net could be enhanced by limiting discretion in the deployment of public funds in the resolution, resolution process. And this includes the Federal Reserve. I and several others have ex suggested limiting the Fed's ability to engage in extraordinary credit measures. Such limits might include abolishing the so-called Section 13.3 provisions of the Federal Reserve Act that allow the Fed to lend to entities outside of the banking industry. Beyond the Fed, the existing bankruptcy process could perhaps be enhanced in ways that speed up the resolution process for large financial firms, but retain clear legal rules about the distribution of losses and oversight by a bankruptcy court. Many have argued that such enhancements might make resolving financial failures without public funds more attractive to policymakers. 
Compared to the real reform of clarifying the scope of the financial safety net, optimizing the number or organization of regulators strikes me as a second or third order problem at best. And proposals to reduce the Federal Reserve supervisory responsibility strike me as misguided. First, under every reform proposal I am aware of, the Federal Reserve banks retain the authority to provide the standard discount window liquidity assistance to banks. This lender of last resort function requires making discriminating judgments about the viability of illiquid institutions, both large and small, on very short notice, literally at the end of the day. A reserve bank will get a call at 5.30, And we have to be prepared to judge whether a discount window loan is warranted because the firm's solvent but illiquid or not warranted because it's insolvent and ought to be closed. In my experience, the capacity to make such judgments relies heavily on the expertise derived from ongoing supervisory activities, which gives Reserve Bank staff a wealth of knowledge about local banking markets, their conditions, the likelihood of a bank failure, failing given its current financial conditions, the meaning of the, the, the surveillance reports, the call reports, the quarterly um, and uh, more frequent balance sheet reports. And it is true that both uh, for both large institutions that garner all the headlines and the community banks, thousands of them that are still uh, an essential segment of our banking system, that this information is important. As long as the Federal Reserve is responsible for discount window lending, it makes no sense in my mind to diminish the Fed's robust role in supervision. More broadly, I spoke earlier about why moral hazard is likely to be particularly acute regarding macroeconomic shocks. Such shocks could affect a broad range of institutions, and thus there will be some economies of scale in supervisory assessments of those risks. You don't want each individual institution team Uh, trying to figure out where we are in the business cycle. More to the point, however, the macroeconomic analytics uh, that we're talking about here is a core competency that's essential to the conduct of monetary policy, and no other federal banking agency can match that expertise. Indeed, the Fed's macroeconomic expertise was vital to the stress tests I mentioned earlier that did so much to improve market confidence last spring. And these stress tests are likely to figure prominently in future capital assessment regimes because they're forward-looking in nature and get around the accounting restrictions on current capital definitions. Severing the organizational link, I think, to those competencies is not a wise way to structure bank regulation. In contrast to the attention devoted to rearranging bank regulatory agencies, it's striking that most reform proposals ignore the two failed government-sponsored enterprises that are now in the United States conservatorship. For the better part of two decades, the GSEs that securitize and guarantee the bulk of the U.S. mortgage market grew their businesses under an ambiguous regime that led most market participants to view them as implicitly guaranteed. Housing finance cannot achieve a sustainable configuration without a final determination of the status of these companies and of whether and how we deliver government subsidies to mortgage finance. I've said elsewhere that I think it would be a mistake to try to build this expansion on another housing boom and that over time we should wean our economy off dependence on housing subsidies. Too many houses were built over the last decade. And what we've been through the last three years, I think, should teach us that subsidizing household mortgage debt was a dangerous policy that was carried too far. 
But whatever society decides about the bias towards housing, real regulatory reform would be incomplete without addressing the fate of the government-sponsored housing finance enterprises. So to summarize my discussion this morning, a healthy, well-functioning financial system requires a restoration of market discipline, and that will be impossible without clear boundaries on the federal financial safety net. True, regulation and supervision need strengthening, and that process is well underway at the Federal Reserve and elsewhere. But merely expanding the scope of regulation to chase those firms that extract implicit guarantees by engaging in maturity transformation would be an interminable journey with yet more financial instability in its wake. Arresting the continual expansion of the implicit safety net will in turn require changing what people believe about the likelihood of government support in the event of a future crisis. Having experienced two years of dramatic safety net expansion, reconditioning beliefs will be a difficult process. It will require writing clear rules that constrain the use of public funds, but it will also require that the rules be confirmed by future official behavior, and this will be perhaps the greatest challenge to achieving real financial regulatory reform. I thank you very much.